When I was asked to preach this Sunday, a thought came to me, what am I going to preach on? And uh, I thought I had, you know, several options to choose from. Uh, Most of you know I like the lectionary readings, and I like the church calendar, and I thought, well, maybe I could do something odd, like preach on Pentecost. We didn't have a sermon on Pentecost. Or maybe the Ascension. No. That would seem to me maybe some might think that would be a little backhanded. Or how about this? All around us are celebrating Christmas in July. Maybe a Christmas message. Well, I think the Christmas in July thing is kind of quirky anyway. And I didn't want to be a quirk, I guess. So the beauty of the lectionary is you have passages to choose from. And so my sermon today is based on Colossians 3, 1 to 14. We read to 11. Let me pick up with 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones and holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, as if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I would like to spend my time primarily on verses 4 through 15. Verses 1 through 4 four are an introduction to the ethical section of Paul's letter. His application of the theology of Christ and salvation he gave us in chapter 1 of Paul's letters. His application of the theology of Christ and salvation he gave us in chapters 1 and 2. To daily life and conduct of Christians. I would point out that as we often did, Paul connected his practical application to his theological exposition with a therefore. The then we find in verse 1, indicating that the Christian way of life is a response to and flows inevitably from God's gifts of salvation through Christ Jesus. True holiness of life is the result of salvation not his cause. I would also note that Paul, again, in typical way, locates our Christian lives between the past, what Christ did for us long ago, and then some time ago in our own personal history and the future. What he will give us someday, and that Christ's response to our lives today by the Holy Spirit derives its meaning, nature, and its importance from the accomplishment of salvation at the cross, an empty tomb, the consummation of salvation on the day of the second coming. We can't see the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us has ever seen him. He is in heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. He is present with us, we know, both from his promise and by the exposition of the work of the Holy Spirit as we have it in the New Testament. But we know what he did, what he does, and what he will do 
from what he has revealed to us in his work in the past, what he has promised to do for us in the future, and of his work in the present. Summarizing all this, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We live in the present looking back and looking forward by looking up to Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. Looking at verse 5, here again we see therefore. As Paul descends further, a further step into the specifics of Christian living, the term put to death, more famously mortify in Christian literature, is a radical term and implies a radical break with the attitudes and behaviors listed. And that belonged to an unbelieving life. Most of these people who would have heard Colossians read for the first time, of course, were people who had become Christians as adults. They had an unbelieving past, and it was easy for them to remember what their lives were like before they met Jesus Christ. As the parallel in verse 9 will indicate, these are the behaviors associated with their former life, their life before Christ, as Paul says explicitly in verse 7. Not only here does Paul remind us that we, have, that we can be idolaters without ever browsing, bowing down to wood or stone. We can make many things our God and worship them by desiring them and longing for them as if they would fulfill our lives instead of living God himself. It's interesting, by the way, a magnificent demonstration of the Bible's perpetual relevance while specific vices may be listed today which are not in the Bible. Think of drug use or pornography. The basic categories are perfectly familiar to us, and the Bible makes its ethical teachings as timeless as its theology. In verse 6, he, Paul re- in his exhortation, with full seriousness, reminds the people are going to hell for the very things you have to eliminate in your life today. In verse 8, commenting on verse 8, it's become chic among some urban evangelicals to use obscene language. Is it a greater shock value if the F word or the S word is uttered by a Christian and young urbanites in particular find it hip? Not everyone, now that everyone drinks wine, bad language is the new taboo for Christians to violate. No. Purity may be, seem hopelessly out of date. Purity of speech, as well as purity of life, may hardly appear in the modern pantheon of evangelical values, but it is immensely important in the teaching of the New Testament. Paul's even sterner in the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. In verse 9, we find out, we're finding out that we as a people, we aren't... (laughs) 
excuse me, we're finding out, aren't we as a people, how truth, precious truth is, how hard it is to find it, and how easily people sacrifice it to other interests. So much of what we hear in the media is false. So much of what is taught in our college and universities is simply untrue. Often the people who teach it know it's untrue. So much of our political speak is manifestly a lie. However, it may be clothed in a veneer of plausibility. Christians may find, will find, that if they are careful of the truth, careful to protect, to speak it, to refrain from speaking what they cannot know to be true, they will stand out as a very different people in this society. In verse 10, as always in the Bible, we have here again the contrast between old and new, objective and subjective. Let me explain. The contrast between old and new, which we find in a number of places repeated in the Bible. The old song, the new song. The old man, the new man. The old covenant, the new covenant. And so on is not simply chronological. It has to do with the nature of salvation itself. The old man, for example, as David, Reverend Green, so amply pointed out in a series of Sunday school lessons, is not Old Testament man. He is rather the unsaved man. The old covenant is not the Old Testament understood either as a body of religious uh, literature or religious revelation and economy in the history of salvation. The old covenant is a broken covenant. The covenant that has, was betrayed by unbelief. Old in such usage is always a pejorative term in the Bible. The new man is the saved man. The man in Jesus Christ who is the new man, the second Adam. In this sense, Abraham and David were new men. And in this sense, a professing Christian who was not actually living the faith of Jesus is still an old man. And as I have said, we also have a tension between the objective and the subjective beautifully identified in verses 9 and 10. We are told in verse 10 that we have put off the old man. And in verse 10, we have put on the new man. But that clearly does not mean that we will inevitably, inevitably live the new life. Otherwise, what is the point of commanding us to put these various behaviors to death? There is a sense in which the old man is dead. And we have nothing any longer to do with him. We are a new creation in Christ. In a sense in which he is still very much alive. So you must still put him to death. There is a sense in which the old man is dead. And we no longer have anything to do with him. Think of it this way. Can an adult become a child again? No. It is impossible. But can an adult act like a child? 
Of course, of course he can. We see adults doing it all the time. In the same way, we have this tension everywhere we look in the teaching of the Christian life in the New Testament. Paul accents it when he uses the word flesh, again, as David has so amply pointed out to us, which you find again in your ESV translation rather than the sinful nature. As the NIV uses it. Paul uses flesh to describe the unrenewed, unsaved man. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God, cannot and will not submit to God's law. So that is what the flesh is. Yet Paul uses the same word flesh to describe what it is in us that constantly is constantly working against the interest of the Holy Spirit. The flesh wars against the spirit, he says, in, in, uh, to the Galatian believers in Galatians chapter 5. We have put on the new man, but then he goes on to say that the new man is being renewed. This has been characterized famously by Paul as now but not yet view of the Christian life. Something definitive has taken place. Much still must remain to be done. We are new creations, and we are becoming new creations. It's interesting and important that Paul says that the new self is being renewed in knowledge. When you stop to think about this, you realize how practical that truth is and how practically important it is to you. Righteousness and holiness of life are impossible without knowledge, without the knowledge of God, of God's will, of Christ and his salvation, without the knowledge of how to of the Christian life, to which the Bible devotes a great deal of its teaching. In any case, notice also that true godliness, true righteousness of life, is not some kind of alien, inhuman conduct. We are new men and women and nothing else. We are human now coming into its own. It's a life we were made to live, the life sin destroyed, and that God's grace is creating in us to live a godly life. To live a truly human is to live a truly human life. Everyone knows this at some level, but it ought to be something immensely satisfying and confirming to you and me. The more we live faithfully as followers of Jesus Christ, the more human we become, and the more our lives become what the human life was always intended to be. In verse 11, Paul's obviously mentioning many of the divisions in human society in that time. No matter Mount's Mound's background, his past, his social status, what matters, what matters is if he is a new creation in Christ. There really is but one division in the human race, old men and new men. Nothing else matters. Scythians was a kind of generic term for the lowest sort of barbarian, the bottom of the, of the barrel barbarian. Originally, people from around the Black Sea. The point's obvious. There can be only one distinction that really matters. 
the absolute distinction between the old man and the new man. Christ is all that matters, which is the point of the last phrase of verse 11. New men in Christ, whatever their circumstance in this world, will carry the future with them. Old men without Christ, however exalted here, will face the wrath of God. Sin divided mankind into these two various groups, and we care so much about them, including national identity. Jesus Christ is unifying them again in his church. In verse 12, all three terms, elect is a noun, holy and beloved are adjectives. So you are a holy and beloved elect of God. All these terms were applied to Israel as the people of God in the Old Testament. The apostolic church is the new Israel, the new manifestation of the chosen people of God in the world. In contrast to the put to death, put away, put off of the previous verses, we now have a put on. There is always this double motion in the Bible's teaching on the Christian life. Off and on. Putting to death the behaviors of our old life and putting on the behaviors of our new life. Mortification and vivification. Putting to death and bringing to life. Killing one thing, making another alive. In all the great works instructing us in how to grow in holiness, you will have an emphasis placed on this double motion. Never one without the other. Always both together. And as many wise Christians will tell us, perhaps the greatest emphasis on the latter rather than, as is our want, the former. And our want, and this, in my opinion, I think particularly with Christian men, our want is especially to concentrate on mortification, the putting to death, the killing of sin, rather than vivification, the putting on of righteousness and godly behaviors. But as the wise will tell you, the truest way to kill covetousness is to learn to find fulfillment and pleasure in the practice of generosity. The most effective way of removing anger from one's heart and speech is to crowd it out with the enthusiastic practice of love and forgiveness. The best way to force sin out of our life is to crowd them out with the behaviors that are their opposite. The particular virtues here listed were perhaps those most in need in a church that had been divided by elitist teaching brought by visiting teachers. So in verse 13, it isn't simply theology first and ethics second, as the therefore in verses 1 and 5 might suggest. The two are connected with that intervening, therefore, to be sure. But theology and ethics are always thoroughly woven together in the teaching of the Bible. We must forgive others because the Lord has forgiven us. You must forgive how? Well, you have to forgive in the same way Christ has forgiven you. Willingly, heartily, and unqualifiedly. In other words... Our living is supposed to be a mirror of our faith. Thinking of those virtues 
as articles of clothing going on over them all as a coat or cloak of love. The fundamental fact of Christian living, as every Christian learns sooner than he or she wishes, is that we have been delivered from sin, and yet it remains a power against which we must struggle all our lives. The Bible never minimizes the power of sin or the scourge it remains, even in the most committed Christian life. We must live our lives with our hearts filled with one and the same, both with relief for God's deliverance and shame for our sins, remaining power and in our hearts and minds. Among other reasons, but perhaps preeminently, this is why Christians can be described as Paul once described them as sorrowful, but always rejoicing. There's another fundamental fact that all Christians must embrace the truth of their lives. Their lives have been recreated by the grace and the power of God. They are a new creation. They are different people. And all the virtues of godliness and Christ-likeness are theirs implicitly. They are there in the seed in their heart and in their life already. Nevertheless, without the exercise of the Christian's will, without his attention and intention, Without his obedience, those virtues will never be actualized. In sanctification, that is, in the living of a godly life and growing in a holy life, there is that which God has done. There is that which God must and will do. And there is that what we must do. The apostle tells him, In Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. For it is a God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's absolutely true that the Lord accepts us as we are, wonderfully true. But it's also true that he accepts us as we are precisely to change us from what we are to what we ought to be, and that he expects our enthusiastic participation in that transformation. It's also true that our right conduct, our godly behavior, our attitudes, our words, our deeds proceed from inside, from character. But that hardly means that we are not to concentrate on right conduct, on holy, pure, and loving living. Indeed, the character is formed by constant attention to conduct, as the Bible's whole presentation of the Christian life confirms. Now, the great tendency for a preacher facing a text like this is to slow down and attend to detail. What was meant by each specific command? What is the specific requirement of sexual purity? What precisely is the sin of covetousness? How can, we properly, how can we properly be ambitious but not covetous at the same time? And so on. But I would emphasize that we want to take the letter as it would have been read to the Colossians on a Sunday morning, having received it from Paul. After all, this is how it strikes us as well, does it not? We know that Paul, we know what Paul means. We understand what lust is and what covetousness is. 
and we know why we are not to give way to such sins. We know what is wrong with them, and we know what kindness, humility, and patience are, and why they are right and ought to be a characteristic of the Christian's life. It is not the individual pieces that Paul is after supremely, but the larger thing, the total effect. Paul has begun his exposition of the Christian life in a very typical way, in the way it is virtually always described in the Bible. He has urged us to put our sins to death and to practice the new life that Christ has created within us. He reminds them that such a life proceeds logically and inevitably from the saving work of Jesus Christ. Being what that work is, it is an imitation of Christ in his sacrificial love for others, and it takes seriousness from the threat of divine wrath. It takes his motivation from the fact that we have been loved with his great love and been saved in defiance of our own ill desert. All of that is familiar to us and to any attentive reader of the Bible. So in the presence of love in the description of Christian behavior as we have read it now in verses 14 and 15, the verses with which we, I concluded the reading, this is a sense in which love is a conventional virtue in Christian teaching. We expect to hear that we are to love others. We know how often it comes up in the teaching of the Bible. But there's something here that I suspect that would leap off the page of the letter when the Colossians heard these verses read for the first time. I further, further suspect that among all the things that Paul said to them, it would be this that they would remember as they left church that day. And it's this I want to stress in our hearing today. Some of you may not find this an immediate problem for you at this particular moment in your life, but I guarantee it has been in the past and it will be again in the future. And I want to teach you to measure your Christian life and your love for God and your obedience to him this way, supremely. We would miss the force of Paul's teaching almost entirely if we understood him in what he says here about Christian love. To simply be adding another point to his list of things that Christians should do and not do. Paul's exposition of the Christian life is not akin to beads on a string with love being one of those beads. Paul's exposition of the Christian life is more like the building of a house, a structure, it begins with laying the foundation because the foundation is crucial. Nothing can be put on that foundation if not properly. The house will not stand straight and it will not become the building we want to build if the foundation is not sound and straight. And so Paul lays the foundations in verses 1 through 10 with his account of the life in Christ how we are dead and risen with Christ, how we are soon to appear with him in glory. His explanation of our lives as new creations, our old selves having been put off, the new put on, how we are being renewed in the image of Christ, and how in this new life, Christ is everything. 
It is upon this foundation that Paul now proceeds to build the house in which a Christian life, which is the Christian's life. But his real interest in this new life is the practice of love. Love gets pride of place, as it always does when we are taught the life of faith in the Bible. Love is the controlling principle of biblical ethics, and so of the Christian life. But our entire duty is summarized by the Lord Jesus. He does so by saying our obligation is to love God and to love our neighbor. And to love radically. Paul in Romans and Galatians teaches us that love is the fulfillment of the law. Take a commandment, any commandment. Do you want to know how to keep it? Turn the particular commandment to love. It's not just rhetoric that led one Bible teacher to say that love coming first in the lift of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 is not an accident. All the rest are simply forms of love. Joy is love singing, he said. Peace is love resting. Patience is love enduring. Kindness is love's self-forgetfulness. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's true touch and self-control. Is loving, is love holding the reins. We might easily say the same thing about the list of virtues in verses 12 and 13. Each of them is a form of love. As Paul puts it in verse 14, love binds them all together into a single, virtuous, godly, Christ-like love. But there is one thing that makes love out of the vague, out of the uncertain, and brings it into the realm of crystal clarity, teaching us exactly what the Bible means with this four-letter word. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. I suspect for many Christians... For many of the Colossian believers who first heard the letter being read, it was this statement that cut through the fog and hit them the hardest. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Christ has forgiven our many sins, our constant and repeated sins, our thoughtless sins that we have so easily and willingly committed against his majesty. Those sins that so have so often re- Revealed how little we cared for Christ's mighty gift. How little we have hated the crimes that sent him to the cross for us. How little we have loved that life which he gave his life that we might live. Christ forgave us with a vengeance. He has cast our sins beyond his back. He has buried them in the deepest sea. He has trampled them under his feet. He has separated us. From them as far as the east is to the west. He has removed them and has remembered them no more. 
Have we forgiven? Do we forgive like that? Or in a matter of forgiveness, are we still just novices? Just learning, beginning to learn what it means to live the Christian life of love. Forgiveness is love surviving sin. That is what forgiveness is. Love surmounting sin. And love that survives sin and a higher, deeper, more beautiful love than anything Adam and Eve ever knew or could have known before the fall. There's a greater love to be practiced in the Christian life than any other love in the world. Greater love than a man, the love of a man and a woman, the love of parents for their children, the love of a patriot for his country. All of that is natural in a way. In some ways, wonderful and pure as those loves can be, they are a form of self-love. It is love for my spouse, love for my children, love for my country. But love that survives attack, that surmounts betrayal, that endures repeated disappointment. There's nothing supernatural, something genuinely godlike. In this love. It's the only love the world does not even aspire to. Because it is a kind of love with which Christ loved us. Unworthy as we are, ungrateful as he knew we would be, and in that same love with which he continues to love us in defiance of our own repeated betrayals. Have you thought about this? Here's C.S. Lewis from his masterpiece, The Four Loves. I quote, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. The Bible's never sentimental about this Christian love to which we are called. Love is pain. Love is heartbreak. Love is sacrifice. At least true love, Christ-like love, must be so in a world of sin and death. The world where everyone is a sinner and everyone must disappoint others in his or her life. In fact, It is the law of this world that one who loves most suffers the most. That is only true only because love, true Christian love, cannot fail, cannot give up, cannot retire from the seeing. It must be faithful as Christ's love was. It must surmount and endure the sins of others as he did for us and does. You might think, you might even be thinking at this moment, a form of self-defense. I love many in my life, but I don't have to love that person because of what he or she has done to me. 
No, says Paul. That person and only that person is the true index of your love. Your love is as Christ-like as the love you have for the one who has disappointed you most cruelly or betrayed you most inexcusably or failed you most painfully. Only that love is Christ's sort of love, the love that survives sin. The love that is built on the foundation that Paul has laid down here. Unbelievers can love in all other ways and sometimes quite notably do so. But this is a different love. A love altogether unlike any human love in the world. And that's why we Christians shouldn't simply sag our shoulders and accept that yes I am called to love my enemy whether my enemy happens to be my own spouse or a Christian friend or a person at work no I'm to aspire to love that person with Christ's kind of self-forgetting love that kind of love you see can rest on only one foundation the work of the Son of God for us and in us and our union with him It is from him that comes the power to love so mightily. It is for him that we find the motivation to endure and to forgive. And it is his love for us that not only makes us want to imitate that love in our behavior to others, but shows us that the kind of love would actually look like in our particular circumstances. Christ is everything here. When Matthew Henry said, it is comfortable to reflect upon the afflictions borne patiently, a Sabbath sanctified uprightly, and an enemy forgiven heartily. He was admitting that these three things are difficult to do, but when you do them, you realize that you have done something that is distinctively Christian. You have acted in a way that is distinctively and uniquely Christian. Christian. As an aside, let me say that one reason I think even Christians do not take their sins nearly as seriously as they should, why they are not more humbled by them, is because they are not as fearlessly forgiven of them by others. An unforgiven sin lies in our lives as something entirely normal, ordinary, and uninteresting. It is only when our sin is forgiven that we set, are set free to feel the full force of its shame. Only when it is forgiven willingly and completely that we are forced to realize what it is we have done and how wrong it was. When sins are not forgiven, they are not repented of. We learned that from our Savior, Jesus. Until sinners know of Christ's love and his readiness to forgive them, they never repent and turn from their sins. It is the reality of us forgiveness that taught us the enormity of our sins. We need to be practicing forgiveness for one another's sake. I think There are enormous numbers of people in the world who are locked up 
in the power of their sins because their sins are never being forgiven. There ought to be at least some Christian in his life or her life against whom he or she has sinned who forgives the person heartily and willfully and kindly and then it again and does it again until the purpose the person realizes that there is a, such a thing as forgiveness of sin and goes looking for it for himself or herself we are inclined to think to ourselves he she doesn't deserve my forgiveness or my compassion or my love deserve How dare we use that word? What does deserve have to do with anything in the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the family of God? What if God had required you to deserve your salvation for his love? Well, then you say, if I forgive him or her, if I continue to love him or her in defiance of the offenses committed against me, I will never, he will never learn his lessons. She will never face her sins. The exact opposite is the case. It is forgiveness more than anything else that forces a reckoning with one's sin. And in any case, what if God had taken that tact with you? Where would you be? Where would you have, what would you have had to learn your lesson first only to be forgiven later? What is God... Would God were to have withheld his love from you until you had put yourself right? You would have never known the love of God or the love in Christ. Remember our hymn we sing at times. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found no Savior true. No, I was found to be. That's the love of God. It is when we argue this way that it becomes clear why the Christian life understood as a set of behaviors is that one and the same life of devotion to Jesus Christ. Devotion to Christ produces the behaviors. Devotion to Christ in some profound way is itself the behaviors. They depend on our understanding of what he did for us, our conviction of our own deserving, and our love for him in return. The behaviors are both an imitation of Christ and an expression of our gratitude to him. This is what makes forgiveness, and particularly the forgiveness of an enemy, even an enemy in your own home, your own family, is what makes forgiveness a supreme definition and example of love, forgiveness, the forgiveness of an enemy in the Bible. This is the Christian life everywhere we look. Foundation and superstructure uniquely joined together, perfectly fitted to one another. It is theological living. And it is Christocentric living. And when you remember that everything becomes very clear, what we are to do, how we are to do it, and why. Let us pray.
My gracious God, our Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and how clearly he sets out what the Christian life is and ought to be. We pray that as your children, I can think of, because of the study of this passage, reflections in my own life. Who are those I have not forgiven? Casting them off and forgotten. Yet Christ did not so do for us. Lord, fill us with the knowledge of God and our Savior Jesus Christ and the willingness and the desire by your Spirit to fulfill so great of love, true character of a child of God. Amen. Please stand that we might sing the doxology. Praise God for